In Mark chapter 5, we see three different miracles performed by Jesus. But there's a theme to all of them. We see these three signs that he did as part of his ministry. In the Bible, uh, a sign is never supposed to be about the thing itself. The sign is supposed to point to something else. Um, if you, I, I heard this illustration. If you see a sign that says, danger, falling rocks, you don't stare at the sign. You're supposed to look up and see if there's anything falling. If you get enamored of the sign itself, you're going to focus all your attention on that, and you're going to actually miss the important part, the thing that the sign is pointing to. So these are three signs, kind of variations on a theme, but all of them are pointing to a larger truth about Jesus. He's, pointing, he's using these signs to point to the kingdom of God. And each one of these signs that he's performing is designed to give his followers more and more ammunition to ask the question that is at the heart of the Gospel of Mark. Who is this? Who is Jesus? The key thing to remember from an earthly perspective when you think about each of these three signs is that each of these people was beyond help. We have a guy who is out of his mind, possessed by thousands of demons. We see a, a woman with an incurable medical problem who has spent 12 years trying to fix it, has spent all the money that she has on doctors, and has actually gotten worse. And then the third one, we see a child who's literally dead. So if you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 5. We'll start at the beginning. In very typical Mark fashion, using very few words, he starts by showing exactly how far outside the bounds of typical Judaism Jesus had traveled to meet with this man. Let me explain. Verse 1, they, they came to the other side of the sea. So they were on the west side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, which is Israel, and they crossed over to the east side. That's outsider country. That's Gentile country. They crossed over to the country of the Gerasenes, near the, Decap near the um, Decapolis, which is ten cities that were started by the Greek Empire and were now run by the Roman Empire. This is Gentile country. Verse 2, when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs. Dead people are unclean, really, really unclean. Touching a dead body in Jewish, in, in Jewish Old Testament law, touching a dead body would make you ceremonially unclean for a week. And during that time, anything that you touched would be unclean as well. Being in the tombs was bad. That made you an outsider. So, Jesus goes into an unclean land of Gentiles. Jesus meets a man from an unclean place, the tombs, and that man happens to have within him an unclean spirit. So this guy, in terms of the, the language of Mark, talking about who is in and who is out, this guy was like out, out, out. We are in a land far from God. We are in a place far from God. And we are talking to a man far from God. And yet, this is a place that Jesus enters willingly. That is important. He chose to enter into this space. Are you starting to see a pattern here? And as with every other demon that we've seen in Mark, once again, this demon recognizes Jesus instantly. He knows his name and he knows who he is. He says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? A man so tormented by demons that he is living in the cemetery among the dead because that's the only place for him. A man so filled with evil forces that he's not only a danger to himself, but he's a danger to everybody else around him. He has been abandoned, completely cut off. And then we see one of the most 
visually arresting scenes in the Gospels. This, is, this story is told in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. Jesus says to him, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And the demons begged Jesus not to throw them out of the country. What does that mean? And so Jesus sees a herd of nearby pigs, again, reinforcing the idea that they're in an unclean place. Eating pork went against the ritual purity laws of the Jews. And so Jesus says to him, you can go into those pigs. And 2,000 pigs are possessed by the demons that are inside this poor man, and they run headlong down the hillside, and they throw themselves into the sea. When you read this through the lens of modern Western people, it's easy to start asking questions. Why was Jesus so nice to the demons? Why did he allow them to do what they wanted to do, rather than just utterly destroying them? And then if you think about it for a second, wait, what about the poor pigs? 2,000 pigs had to give up their life. If you think about it even further, what about the pig farmers? With a, with a herd of pigs this big, 2,000 of them, this might not have just been the livelihood of a couple of farmers. This could, th- this could theoretically have been literally the economy of the entire town. They basically had their whole herd, their way of life, destroyed. And these are legitimate questions to ask when you look at it through our lens. One commentator put it this way, Jesus' acceptance of the appeal from the demons, please, please let us go into these pigs, Jesus' acceptance of this results in the destruction of a large, herd of a large herd of pigs. Neither Mark nor the other synoptic evangelists show any awareness of the moral questions which so naturally arise in a modern Western mind with regard to the gratuitous and large-scale loss of animal life as well as the substantial economic loss. Perhaps Jesus' comment recorded by Matthew in a, different, in a different part of Matthew, perhaps it has something to say about this. In Matthew chapter 12, verse, verse 12, Jesus un, unequivocally says, people are worth more than animals. It suggests another perspective in which this incident might be understood. There's another option, though, and I, and I, I think this one has some merit. They have Archaeologists have found local exorcism rituals in Gentile countries, dating back to the Babylonian Empire, that used a pig as an alternate host for the expelled demon. And so it's possible that, as often happens, that Jesus was using the culture of the place that he was in. He was using a a sign, a ritual that they would understand to demonstrate his power and mastery. Basically like, oh, you guys use one pig to cast out a demon? This demon that I'm casting out is so powerful that it's going to take 2,000 pigs. Now, I don't have a pat little answer for any of these, these questions that a modern Western person might ask. But, but what I do know is that the pigs rushing into the sea is absolutely not the most amazing part of this whole thing. And I know that because Mark tells us so. There's arresting visual imagery in, in these, the legion of demons going into the pigs. But the really amazing part from the people who were there, the really amazing part is the man after Jesus gets done with him. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. I bet they did. And the people came to see what had happened. Makes sense. Verse 15. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. 
They weren't afraid by what had happened to the pigs. They were afraid of this simple, quiet picture of this absolute madman now sitting there with Jesus, wearing clothes, sane, rational, and sober. And that terrified them. Because this man had cured the incurable. He had taken something utterly and completely unholy, and he had brought his own holiness into that place. Because Jesus finds us as unclean people, and he makes us clean. And then we see the second sign. We see Jesus crossing back into Israel, back to the other side of the sea, so he's back among the Jews, and he's approached by Jairus, one of the elite, one of the rulers, one of the religious rulers of the town. And Jairus comes and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he begs him for his help. And this is noteworthy because, remember, the leaders of the synagogues are not exactly the biggest fans of Jesus. They kept trying to remove him from their towns. And they even looked for ways to kill him because they thought that he was trying to put himself in a position of power that's only designed for God. But clearly Jairus had heard of Jesus and had at least some measure of trust or belief in what Jesus is doing. Maybe he thought he was a prophet like Elijah in the story that we heard from 1 Kings. And so he comes and he falls down at his feet, the second of three people in this, in this three stories to fall down at Jesus' feet. He begs him for help. But Jesus doesn't act immediately. He doesn't immediately say, okay, let's go. He doesn't race off to Jairus' help. Jairus pleads for help with his dying daughter. Jesus agrees to go. But along the way, there's an interruption because of this woman who reached out to him. And so this is the second sign, the woman. This woman had had a flow of blood for 12 years. And at first, it might seem a little confusing what that means. And, and while the text doesn't explicitly say it, the interpretation throughout the history of the church has always been that this is a uterine flow of blood. And the reason for this is that there's phrases, the exact same phrases that are used here are used back in Leviticus to talk about the same thing. And I realize that this isn't necessarily what we might think of as pleasant church talk. It's not, it's not the kind of thing that you expect to hear on a Sunday morning at church. But in all honesty, that's the kind of thinking that tends to put the Bible and church at one place in our lives, separating it from real life. But when you read the Bible, the Bible is as, is as raw and gritty and human as the rest of our lives are. It speaks to real people about real problems, like this woman who had had this uterine flow of blood for 12 years. So this is another story about Jesus and outsiders. This is another story about the Holy One of Israel making unclean people clean. I want to explain what I mean by this. It all goes back to what's called the Holiness Code in the Old Testament. When, when, when you talk about the, the laws and the rules that are laid out in the first five books of the Bible, there are two types of laws. There, there's moral laws and there's ritual laws or ceremonial laws. Moral laws are the things that are right and the things that are wrong, the things that are good and the things that are evil. The ceremonial laws are about being in the community of God and worshiping in the presence of God. So moral laws are right and wrong. Ceremonial laws are things that made someone unclean or unclean or impure, which is to say temporarily unable to worship in the tabernacle or in the temple. And so in Leviticus 15, it says, again, this is, this is real life stuff here. 
It says, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at any time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she is, she is unclean for as long as she has the discharge. And kind of like with dead bodies, it says that any bed that she lies on, any chair that she sits in will be unclean. And anyone who touches that bed or that chair will be unclean. They have to go wash their clothes and bathe with water and perform ritual purification. And again, this doesn't mean that anyone afflicted with this is sinful. Moral law, ceremonial law, different. There were rules that God put in place, often around blood and bleeding, that would mean that someone was ceremonially unclean and they need to go under a purification ritual before they could enter the tabernacle for worship. So this woman, living in a Jewish city, among other Jews, had had this condition for 12 years. Every single day, for 4,300 days, this woman had been shut out of community life. She would have been shut out of temple worship. She would have literally been untouchable. If anyone had touched her or her clothes or her bed or her chair, they would have had to go, they would be unclean themselves. Every single day for 12 years, if you think about that, the, 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 the way that she must have felt ostracized, the shame that she must have felt, the separation that she had to live with every day. There's a hopelessness that comes in our lives from thinking that things are never, ever, ever going to change until she meets Jesus. And then... As he's passing by, she reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. And if you remember what I just said, anyone who touches her is going to become impure. You have to imagine that she kind of weighs in, her, in the balance the shame of, of the exposure, knowing that just to reach out and touch this man will make him unclean by her touch. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I know I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So she weighed these two things in the balance. The idea of the shame of possibly making this teacher impure, but also the knowledge that just by touching him, she knew she could be healed. The next part is interesting. Jesus, Jesus turns around and he says, who touched me? And it's kind of funny because like, doesn't the son of the most high God, the second person of the Trinity, doesn't he know the thoughts and actions of the people that he literally created? So why does he say, who touched me? Yes, he knew who touched him. Of course he knew who touched him. But now, now by calling her out, she would have to declare to the people what she did. She would have to tell the people that it was her, this woman with this impurity, who had touched the garment of this rabbi, this prophet, and that by doing so, everybody would know that she had, in effect, made him unclean. And yet, she hadn't made him unclean. She was the one who had been healed. Jesus is pure. We are impure. But when we reach out to him, we don't make him unclean. He's the one that makes us clean. It's a reversal of the system. That's what this woman experienced as Jesus was on the way to look at Jairus' daughter. The ongoing shame of separation from her community, this persistent feeling of being shut out, the, the physical toll that it had taken on her body, the economic toll that it had taken on her finances, it had wiped her out, all of that, gone by a mere touch of the hem of Jesus' cloak. She was healed and whole. 
She was restored to wholeness in her body, and she was restored to wholeness of her life in the community of believers. Because Jesus finds us as unclean people and makes us clean. And then the third sign. Back to Jairus' daughter. When Jesus stops on the way, he demonstrates power over illness, over shame. He once again demonstrates the ability with this this woman. He demonstrates the ability to make unclean things clean. But now he's going to demonstrate his power over death itself. Remember back with the man with the demon in the Gerasenes, I said touching a dead body in Jewish law was not good. It made you unclean. And so now Jesus starts back on his way to attend to Jairus' sick daughter. But on the way, it seems like the delay in, in healing this bleeding woman has been quite costly. In stopping to cure a lesser medical condition and forcing a discussion about it on her, Jesus had, in effect, created a larger one. The young girl, this 12-year-old daughter of the religious leader, had died. And so, because touching a body makes you unclean, Jairus and his servants can't imagine that now Jesus, this rabbi, this prophet, is going to bother going into the house now. This teacher's not going to defile himself around a dead body. So why did Jesus wait? Why did he stop? If this girl was in danger of death, why did he stop? Did the heat just cut off? Feels like it's getting colder in here. Okay, just me. Why did he stop? Why did he wait? If only he had hurried, she might not be dead. It's, it's not hard for me to picture Jairus on the way with Jesus, and, and, and they stop, and they're having this conversation, and Jairus kind of getting antsy. We asked this healer to come to my dying daughter, and now he's stopping to talk to this other woman? What's up with that? Jesus delayed for the same reason with Jairus' daughter, that he delayed at the end of Mark 4 last week. We see that Jesus was asleep in the boat, while the rest of the disciples were being tossed around the Sea of Galilee. And everybody thought they were going to drown except him. Jesus delayed with Jairus for the same reason that he let the demons go into a herd of pigs so that they could throw themselves like lemmings into the sea. Jesus delayed on the way to this dying girl for the same reason that he delayed in the, in the Gospel of John on the way to visit his friend Lazarus. He did it so that his power could be shown and that his followers could ask themselves in amazement, who is this? In the terrible storm, Jesus is asleep in the boat, and he's not worried, because he knows how the story is going to end. Approaching the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes, who had terrorized the town and who was so strong that he could break iron chains and shackles, Jesus was unafraid, because he knew how the story was going to end. So when he hears about a girl who's dying, he doesn't mind taking a pit stop along the way to help someone else, because Jesus knows how this story is going to end. The Holy One of Israel has power over demons. He has power over shame and physical illness, and he even has power over death itself. Jesus knows how the story will end because Jesus finds us as unclean people and makes us clean. Now these are three life-changing events for the people of this story. A man completely written off as an untouchable outcast, a danger to himself and to the community. A woman written off as an untouchable outcast, and a young girl who had literally died. All three of them encounter Jesus, and all three of them are radically healed. Can you imagine for a second 
that, that, that this did not dramatically alter the life of those people and, the, and those around them. Can you imagine that for the rest of their lives, a day would go by when they didn't reflect on their encounter with Jesus? I have to imagine that for all three of them, this was literally the defining event of their life, the, the thing around which everything else situated itself. How might this have reordered their lives? How might this have reordered the way they look at the world and their place in it? How they interact with other people? How they spend their time and their energy? What aspect of their lives wouldn't have been changed by this radical encounter with the Holy One of Israel? Jesus finds unclean people and makes them clean. And we are those people. We were the unclean, the outcast, dead in our trespasses and sins. But when we encounter Jesus, when he seeks us out, when he comes into unclean places and finds us and heals us and raises us to new life, it changes everything. Encountering the living God is the core. It's the center around which the rest of our world gets wrapped. Jesus finds us as unclean people and makes us clean. And the call on our lives, friends, is the same thing that Jesus said to the demon-possessed man. He said, go and tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. Now, Jesus said an interesting thing to the bleeding woman. He didn't say, go and tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. He said to the, to the, to the bleeding woman, your faith has healed you. And then he says to the family of the dead girl something very similar. He says, do not fear, only believe. Faith and belief are the same word in Greek. And so he's saying, your faith has healed you. He's saying, do not fear, only believe. Well, okay, faith in what or believe in who? Anyone in life can go through their lives believing all they want in their own abilities or in the power of positive thinking or in family or in community or fate or karma. You can have a massive amount of faith in those things, but those things cannot ultimately heal. They can't save. They can't purify. They can't raise anyone from the dead. Faith in anything is meaningless if the object of that faith has no power. It's the power of Christ that saves us. It's not the power of our faith. And this is absolutely perfectly illustrated in our Acts 19 passage that Mariel read. It's it's one of the funniest passages in the entire New Testament. The Apostle Paul is going through the city of Ephesus, and the power of Jesus is flowing through him so much that People are being healed even by touching one of his handkerchiefs or one of his aprons because Jesus was the one working through Paul. And so some local charlatans decide that they want to get in on the act and they want to try the same thing. They're going to name the name of Jesus without actually being followers of Jesus. Now, we see in Mark that when someone touches the hem of Jesus' cloak, they're healed instantly. We see in Acts that when someone touches one of Paul's handkerchiefs, they're healed instantly. Because Jesus was the one doing the action. Remember what the demons would cry out when Jesus came to call them out? They'd call him by name. They'd say, what do you want with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? But when the sons of Sceva tried to do this same thing, and we have to assume it was for their own glory and not for the glory of God, instead of crying out, what do you want from us, Jesus, son of the most high God? The sons of Sceva try to cast out this this demon, and they say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, who Paul preaches about, come out of him. And the demon says, well, I, I definitely know who Jesus is, and I've even heard of Paul. Who are you again? 
And then the man with the demon leaps on these seven grown men, the seven sons of Sceva, and just beats the absolute mess out of them. Doing things in the name of Jesus without faith in Jesus itself is really pointless. But with faith in Jesus, Jesus tells us that with faith the size of a mustard seed, that anything is possible. Because Jesus is the one who saves. He's the one that builds the kingdom. And these three unclean people that Jesus found, he sought out and he made them clean. I cannot imagine how this did not radically transform their lives. And when we, when we know the power of Jesus, when we know that he is the only one that takes unclean people and makes them clean, everything in our lives reorients around that truth and seen through that lens. So, a demoniac, a woman with unceasing bleeding, and Jairus' daughter. Apart from Christ, all of them are outcast. All of them are undignified. All of them are wounded without the possibility of cure. And we are like that. Apart from Christ, all of us are outcasts. All of us are wounded and undignified. All of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus makes unclean people clean. He makes broken people whole, and he makes dead people alive. Trust in this. Trust in that this week. Send all of your problems to the cross of Christ. And then, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, we ask that you would continue to use your word and your church to show us your power. We thank you. I thank you that it's not the size of my faith on any given day that affects my salvation. It's the size of your power. God, I ask that you would take this story of your, of your might and that you would use it in my heart this week to change how I view the world, to change how I think about things. I ask that you would do that for all of us, that you would use this to center our thoughts on you and that we would be empowered and emboldened to go and tell others what the Lord has done for us. In Christ's name, amen.